Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, five years ago proclaimed as the Caliph of the Islamic State, has been eliminated by American special forces in Syria. In this episode of Foreign Policy, I offer some thoughts on this development. After that, you'll hear a conversation recorded prior to the death of Big Baghdadi with Seth Fransman, whose new book, After ISIS, America, Iran, and the Struggle for the Middle East, derives from four years of on-the-ground reporting from 10 countries in the region. Also joining us, John Hanna, Senior Counselor at FDD, who served as National Security Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. We'll discuss the Islamic State in a broader context. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're with us on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. The elimination of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is a battle won, but it is not, by any stretch of the imagination, the end of the endless war. Islamism, in all its fury and diversity, goes marching on. Five years ago, Baghdadi was proclaimed by his followers, the Caliph, successor to the Prophet Muhammad. Even Osama bin Laden was never so audacious. The Islamic State in Iraq, a splinter from al-Qaeda, had been organized in 2006. Eight years later, it rebranded as simply the Islamic State, but a replacement for the Ottoman Caliphate, which collapsed less than a century ago, an historical blink of the eye. At its zenith, the Islamic State occupied a territory the size of Great Britain, established provinces in a dozen other countries, ordered up terrorist attacks in Europe, and attracted volunteers from around the world. Some young Muslim men came from impoverished lands where opportunities for meaningful employment and marriageable women were scarce. Others came from America and Europe, drawn to what they imagined would be an exciting lifestyle, wielding AK-47s, zipping around in the fighting vehicles known as technicals, slave raiding, and occasionally slitting the throats of infidels and apostates. Still others, men and women alike, regarded themselves as pious pioneers. They were eager to contribute to what they saw as the restoration of the power and glory that had been stolen from the global Islamic community by the forces of unbelief and their wayward Muslim allies. The death of Baghdadi deals a devastating blow to the Islamic State. One obvious reason, his skills and stature will be difficult to replace. One not so obvious reason, in the theology to which Baghdadi subscribed, it is Allah who decides the outcome of battles and wars, that the caliph, not just a soldier seeking martyrdom, could be taken down by Delta Force operators and army rangers, suggests to the faithful that his mission lacked divine endorsement. Still, the Islamic State will attempt to reinvent itself. Military strategist David Kilcullen warned this week that it may prove even harder to defeat in its next incarnation. 
It always surprises me how many government officials, academics, and journalists, after all these years, remain confused about Islamists, who they are, what they believe, why they fight. That was vividly illustrated by the headlines that appeared online over Jody Warwick's otherwise informative Washington Post obituary of Baghdadi. The first read Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Islamic State's terrorist-in-chief, dies at 48. Some Post editors apparently considered that insufficiently respectful of the deceased. The next version read Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State, dies at 48. As absurdly deferential as this headline is, noted Zudi Jasser, president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, it confirms what Islamists, including those appearing in the pages of the Washington Post, strenuously deny, that Mr. Baghdadi was actually a respected scholar of the global Islamist establishment. Post copy editors gave it another try. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, extremist leader of Islamic State, dies at 48. That's better though a casual reader might assume he had slipped in the bathtub rather than been chased into a dead-end tunnel by American commandos. Two questions strike me as worth further consideration. How odd is it to think of Baghdadi as austere? True, in his youth he was offended at the sight of men and women dancing in the same room, as Jody Warwick duly reports. But when he assumed the mantle of Caliph, he kept a number of personal slaves, including Yazidi women, and Kyla Muller, an American hostage who eventually died in captivity. As for Baghdadi's Islamic scholarship, he had degrees from the University of Baghdad and the Saddam University for Islamic Studies to prove it. How well do you think a non-Muslim arguing that Islam is a religion of peace would have fared in a debate against him? That said, I disagree with those in the far right who argue, as Baghdadi would have, that less belligerent readings of Islam should be dismissed as inauthentic and even heretical. Which brings me to a final point that goes against the conventional grain. The ideology which Baghdadi espoused and the goals for which he fought do not significantly differ from those of al-Qaeda, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the Muslim Brotherhood. True, Muslim brothers prefer a tie and a jacket to a turban and robes. True, too, Iranian followers of Ayatollah Khomeini may be well-educated, cultured, fluent in the language of diplomacy, and comfortable in the company of unbelievers, at least those who are friendly and compliant. Also true, the strategies these factions employ are not identical. However, all believe in the imperative of Islamic supremacy, envisioning a world ruled by and for Muslims, one in which infidels are at least relegated to an inferior status. All believe in death to America and all are prepared to wage an endless war, if that's what it takes, to achieve their objectives. As Baghdadi's followers mourn, what may give them hope is the war weariness and isolationism rising on both the right and the left in America. President Trump deserves credit for eliminating the leader of the Islamic State, but I hope he now realizes that had he withdrawn all American forces from Syria months ago, cutting off the American partnership with the Kurds who supplied critical intelligence on Baghdadi's whereabouts, this mission could not have been accomplished. Awful as the prospect of endless war may be, conceiving a worse alternative should not require much stretching of the imagination. In 2011, uh, the Obama administration said, well, we're, we're pulling all our troops out of Iraq. And uh, I remember 
Vice President Biden said this is one of the great achievements of our administration. We're leaving behind a stable government. Al Qaeda seemed to be dead, or at least moribund within within Iraq. But somehow ISIS grew from the ashes of that. Is that a fair way to, to put it? I, I, I do think the American withdrawal from Iraq in, in 2011 was a critical variable in this stew um, of, of failure that uh, a big part played by the Maliki government in Iraq and its oppression against uh, Sunnis and its failure to take advantage of the uh, the Sons of Iraq program that had actually driven our success in in Anbar and it's uh it's from that 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 mixture of this vacuum and this oppression uh and the absence of an uh, of an uh, of an American hand um supporting uh stability and moderation uh in Iraq um uh once you remove that that factor i think it uh, was like jet fuel on this very bad uh, cycle that Iraq began to fa- began to fall into in 2013 and then 2014 with the full blown emergence of ISIS, which did in fact build on Al Qaeda in 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 Iraq, um, and which I think even in its heyday uh, of the caliphate inside of Syria, Baghdadi himself is an Iraqi. And a lot of the great commanders and masterminds of ISIS itself were, in fact, uh, Iraqis. There are some ideological, theological differences, right, between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Talk about what those are. I do think, for instance, the decision to enslave people and genocide them goes far beyond anything we saw from al-Qaeda. Now, I don't know if al-Qaeda would have done that had it been given a chance somewhere, but I think that... What make, makes ISIS particularly horrid and disgusting, which I saw firsthand, was, you know, they systematically lined people up like the Einsatzgruppen did in 1940 and just massacred them and murdered yeah. them. They sold, I don't know, five, 6,000 people into slavery, of which there are 3,000, mostly women, still missing. I think basically means that they are dead, unfortunately. I was recently in Iraq, and we saw the files of the missing people. And we saw also there have been thousands of people that were brought back, some of which were kind of purchased back through smuggling channels including children and women. And we also know, as you said, that there were people that then were just uh, mass murdered. But the the horrific nature of what ISIS did when it was at its peak in 2014, 2015, of selling people, even using social media apps. We use like Telegram and stuff, right? We use it to like meet our friends for a drink or something. These people were putting up pictures of human beings and saying, oh, you know, she's a 13-year-old virgin. Would you like to buy her? I mean, it's just horrific. And by the way, foreigners who joined ISIS of the 50,000 or so that went to join, they played a, a proportionate, if not disproportionate role, I believe. I think ISIS had a kind of caste system in which some foreigners were at the top of that system. And they were they thought it was great. I'm going to go to Syria. I'll buy some people. I'm going to have a nice villa. I mean, it's really the worst of the worst. I guess ISIS, I think, promised young men in terms of they had different messaging for each group, right? So they had one message for Iraqi Sunnis or something, which is you're being suppressed by the government. So, you know, plenty of young men decided to join out of totally, I guess, reasonable ideas. It's like, yeah, well, I hate the government. I guess I'll join this other organization. But what they promised the foreigners throughout, especially a place like Europe, is just the worst type of hedonistic behavior. And, yeah, you can have a gun. You can just kill as many people. It's almost like murder tourism or something. And it's, and it's extraordinary, I think, breakdown a bit in what some Western societies that allowed uh, not a generation of people to join this organization, but uh, far too many. Thousands, of every thousands of people that join in Europe, there must be thousands of supporters around them. So there was a breakdown that I guess we could have seen in terms of the rise of fascism in the Nazi party or something, where you allow 
extremism and radicalism to kind of eat away at parts of your society and don't put enough of attention on it. But uh, Cliff, if I, if, if I could, I do think this romance, this idea of the, the decision to declare the caliphate uh, was a big part of the ISIS ideology that eventually kind of uh, distinguished it from what al-Qaeda's uh, goal was, that the early and quick uh, declaration of a caliphate, uh, of a territorial area that uh, uh, Islam would control, uh, was both a big attraction, particularly for the foreigners to come, uh, because this is, uh, according to some versions of the of the of the Islamist ideology, is kind of the culmination to be able to go and live in in this kind of state. Uh, but it also made ISIS very quickly a target of the West, uh, mm-hmm. put a big target on its back, and uh, uh, led to the uh, triggered the the creation of this coalition, this anti ISIS coalition that eventually included dozens and dozens of countries around the world militarily decided to attack and, and take down the caliphate. Yeah, I, I do think this is a significant point because Osama bin Laden never uh, had the temerity, uh, the audacity to declare himself the caliph, right, which means the leader of all the Islamic world. That's what it, it pronouncement was. I think he would have thought that was premature. They hadn't gotten to that point. And when you establish a caliphate, it needs to be forever. Yep. And, you know, you don't want it to be destroyed. Uh, and Baghdadi said, no, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to declare myself the caliph. I'm going to establish this this I'm going to take territory, and we're going to begin right now. That's sort of the the difference be, 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 between the two. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair, and and the savagery of it. Yeah. I do, but yeah. I do think in Iraq we saw that. If anybody remembers a guy named Abu Musab al Zarqawi in Iraq, who really was the uh, sort of godfather of uh, murdering and beheading people on video and sending that out for the world to to observe and slaughtering, uh, attempting to slaughter Shiites in, in very big numbers. Uh, uh, Zarqawi, who headed up al-Qaeda in, in Iraq at one point, and he himself got into quite a tiff with al-Qaeda Central that was located in Pakistan that bin Laden and Zawahiri had uh, had real problems with what Zarqawi was uh, doing. And it's really ISIS that are now the inheritors, I think, of that legacy, that brand of savagery that uh, Zarqawi brought to al-Qaeda in the early 2000s. The Islamic State brought plenty of opposition to it, but who really is responsible for doing it damaged. And I'll ask you also, is it defeated? Some have said, President Trump has said it is. I'm not sure he's correct in that. I think it's been damaged. It's lost its territory, but it's probably not defeated. No, I think that it's not defeated. I think that ISIS, I mean, it made a bit of a mistake, which is that it it expanded very, very quickly. It was very lucky in the beginning because when it conquered areas around Mosul and several Iraqi divisions kind of disappeared, it captured thousands of American uh, military supplies that had been given or sold to the Iraqi army. So all of a sudden it had the equivalent of a division worth of stuff. And it took a long time for the airstrikes to destroy a lot of that. ISIS has faded back into become something else that looks a bit more like al-Qaeda insurgency or something. But... Mm. No, that was a, the, the campaign in Syria was a phenomenal one. Of course, other countries played some role. The Syrian uh, regime, of course, did defeat ISIS on the other side of the Euphrates River, right? So, no, you know, ISIS had picked a fight with everyone, 
And there is a sense that a lot of countries also used the claim that they were fighting ISIS as an excuse to do other things. The Russians, when they went into Syria, by the way, claimed to be fighting ISIS. The Turks went into Syria claiming to be fighting ISIS. Now, I would tend to think that most of these countries didn't actually do much fighting of ISIS, but there were organizations, as you said, the SDF played a huge role, and the Shia militias, of course, I think they're not a good organization, but they actually did the brutal house-to-house fighting that looked like Stalingrad in many, many Sunni cities like Fallujah and Ramadi to, to defeat the organization. The, the the Turks, you would say, did, did not play much of a role in this, and the Russians didn't play much of a role in, in this because, of course, they claimed that that's what they were doing there, but they were supporting Bashar al-Assad in Syria, getting who was close to defeat. They had, they had other agendas, essentially. Right, and they used the cover of ISIS because it sounds better to say, you know, I'm going to go into Syria to fight ISIS than, than to say, well, I'm going to go into Syria to support the Assad regime and <laughs> bomb Syrian rebel civilian areas and hospitals and things like that. So it sounds much cooler to be like, you know, we're just fighting jihadists. And uh, Turkey, of course, has said the same thing. If Turkey was really worried about ISIS, how come it didn't go into Syria in 2014 and 2015? How come it waited until 2016 and 2018 to start taking over areas in Syria? And Turkey, in some ways, John, has facilitated uh, the flow of fighters into the Islamic State in the past. We kind of, we kind of have strong evidence of that, do we not? Yeah, no, I think this is a, uh, a kind of forgotten story, but a very important story that Seth uh, mentions here is that in 2014, when ISIS first emerged on the scene, uh, the American first choice to be the tip of the spear in fighting ISIS for a partner was not to look to a, a Kurdish non-state actor in northeastern Syria that was affiliated with a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, the PKK. It was to look to our NATO ally, the second largest military in, in the alliance, to really help us defeat, defeat ISIS that, that had emerged. And the Turks essentially came up with plans that were pie in the sky, made no sense, required tens of thousands of American mm. troops, and were a non-starter for the Obama administration. Not only that, of course, the Turks uh, allowed up to 40,000 foreign fighters to flow through Turkey into the airports in Ankara and Istanbul in order to move across a border. Americans uh, presented a, a very concrete intelligence to the Turks that they needed to shut down that border, that this phenomenon of foreign fighters was happening, flowing to the caliphate, uh, and the Turks refused to do anything about it. They at best looked in the other direction. At the same time, it took 10 months from 2014 to the summer of 2015 for the Turks to actually approve America's right to use an air base in Sirlik for us to be able to attack the Islamic State inside of Syria. The Turks held that up. It is certainly a base where the Americans have, have, have had a presence mm. for, for literally decades. Uh, they require Turkish authority to be able to actually launch lethal attacks from there. And, uh, and the Turks refused that. And, uh, and, and to the other point you mentioned on the economic front, we have pretty clear evidence that there were tens of millions of dollars uh, that ISIS was actually making by selling smuggled oil into, into Turkey, uh, antiquities, uh, doing a fair amount of trade across that Turkish border. Uh, with Turkish, the Turkish government or people in the Turkish government very, very witting of it and essentially looking the other way or actually making money off of that trade with, with the Islamic State. So Turkey's 
role uh, in the the actual establishment and consolidation of the caliphate is a um, is a very at best amb ambiguous one and not a helpful one for the United States or the coalition. A year ago, December, um, President Trump rather suddenly said he was going to pull all troops out of. Uh, out of Syria and out of Afghanistan at the time as well. Eventually, he was walked back from that, I think it's fair to say, by Secretary of State Pompeo, certainly by John Bolton, who was then National Security Advisor. And I, I think a lot of people assumed, I probably did, that, okay, he understood the situation better and saw why that would be a bad idea. But then, of course, this month, October, what do we have? We have the president saying, he is going to pull those troops out. Now, as we record this, it's a little unclear to me exactly what happened, um, whether President Trump greenlighted Turkey, Turkish President Erdogan to go into Syria, or whether Erdogan essentially said, I'm going in. My military is ready to do that. You don't want to stand in my way. That would be bad. And if he was betting, maybe it was a bluff, but it was a good bluff because he thought, you know, I don't think Trump is going to go to war with me over my uh, going into Syria and telling him to get his troops out of the way because he wants his troops out of there anyhow. So he, I don't see him risking a war for that reason. I can just do that. What sounds credible to you guys? Seth, you want to start? Well, I think that Turkey and Erdogan certainly seem to understand Trump from more than a year ago. Trump had actually indicated in spring 2018 that he said the troops are coming home soon. I think and there's evidence that in the December 2018 call, Erdogan had already said to Trump, what are you doing in Syria? Why are you here? I think Erdogan reads the American press and he understands this president wants to leave. All I need to do is give him a good reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said, why are you here? Let us do this. It's 7,000 mm -hmm. miles from you. Let us do it. We'll fight ISIS for you. Don't worry about it. Why do you care about this SDF? Who cares about these people? Let us deal with it. And Trump said, oh, okay. And, of course, he was walked back. And then, of course, there was another conversation this month in October after two months or so of Turkish threats in which I think if you read the White House statement on October 6th, it says Turkey is going forward with its longstanding offensive. To me, that's a green light. He's got 3.6 million Syrian refugees inside of his countries that he's looking to put somewhere. He's just lost a, a major election, uh, local elections, where he lost control of of Turkey's major cities to uh, to opposition parties. Uh, this is definitely a way for him to whip up nationalistic fervor. Killing Kurds is uh, seems mm. to be a popular thing uh, mm. to do amongst a lot of a lot of people in Turkey. It's a it's a winning issue for him. Uh, so I think uh, Seth is right that he decided uh, mm. now was the time uh, uh, to go to do this. That the uh, and that Trump. Uh, has as his first principle a desire to get out of there and to be able to claim to the American people that he, in fact, promised to remove American troops from the Middle East and, and these endless conflicts there. And that's, uh, that's precisely what he's, what he's doing. And here's what he wants now, as you say, is are those lands adjacent to Turkey in, 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 in northern Syria that the Kurds consider their lands, the, concern, the Kurds are living on, He's likely to move them out of there, ethnically cleanse them, and bring in the refugees that he has in Turkey, who are mostly Sunni Arabs, and settle them in those lands. And 
it's not clear where the Kurds go at, at that point, is it? Where do they, can they go to Iraqi Kurdistan? Can they leave? Or will they fight because they consider it their land and they're just going to fight to the last Kurd? They are good fighters. That's why they were so useful to the U.S. to work with uh, against uh, the Islamic State. Well, the thing we all kind of forget here is there was a time in American history when, you know, in the Balkans or other times in the 1990s when the United States would actually kind of like stop ethnic cleansing and the United States would try to create ceasefires and things. It's very strange that we've almost become a partner now through this very strange ceasefire deal, which seems to almost now give Turkey even more of a carte blanche to do what it wants. Um, that we would become almost a weird partner in allowing Turkey to take over a part of eastern Syria that U.S. partner forces among the SDF had liberated. It's very strange. I mean, these towns like Kobani is part of the reason the U.S. went into eastern Syria in the first place. So, and Turkey's demands in eastern Syria are unprecedented in global affairs. The idea that uh, Turkey would be allowed to control a massive belt of 30 uh, kilometers deep all on the border, that it's allowed to just resettle people there. If Turkey wanted to resettle refugees, why didn't it resettle them next to Drabalus or in Idlib province or Afrin? It's already gobbled up a whole part of Syria. So there are other parts of Syria where the Turks have control, where they could That's be right. taking those refugees. So they don't need to do this. No, they only to want the to Kurds. put them where Kurds are. And I think that it's it's very strange that the U.S. has not found a way to prevent this because certainly I understand that the Trump administration doesn't like these foreign conflicts. But the thing is, there's a, a statement, right, that if you if you break it, you buy it or whatever. I mean, the Americans decided to go in. We didn't have to go in there. We could have just allowed, as Trump has said, well, let them fight each other. But, you know, once you kind of own it, you have to kind of, I think it's wrong, very wrong to walk away from it and allow it to be a disaster. And again, I would say, unlike with Vietnam, where the U.S. walked away with a, some sort of agreement, and then two years later, of course, it fell apart. But the Americans don't even have a semblance of an agreement. And I think this strange ceasefire thing is just a, once again paving the way for Turkey to get everything it wants. There was also a certain amount of dysfunction within the U.S. government that you write about in your book. The Pentagon wanted to work with the Kurds. But the State Department and the CIA, they had other ideas. We started off working with the Syrian rebels against Assad. And that was a successful, a bit successful in the beginning CIA program. It ended up being a kind of failure by 2015. And eventually Trump ended that. So we got rid of that track, the Syrian rebel anti-Assad track. Then there was the Obama administration's Iran deal track, which basically meant America's not going to get rid of Assad. We're going to fight against ISIS. And then we had another, that was the track that was kind of the Pentagon track. And then the State Department, for some reason, was negotiating. Of course, it only works with states. So it wanted to work with Turkey and other states to talk about some sort of pie-in-the-sky peace initiative afterward, which was John Kerry and then Tillerson and other people. I think the problem with American policy in this whole thing is that we don't see a Clausewitz-style policy where, where your military and your State Department and your National Security Council and White House are all playing on the same team. And I think that the, our adversaries... Iran and Russia do that. They play on the same team. They play chess while we play checkers. In a way, this is about whether or not we have, after all this time, I mean, 40 years since the Islamic Revolution in Iran and 18 years or so since the, the attacks of 9-11, we had a global war on terrorism. We were fighting violent extremism. Um, that meant we went into Iraq. That meant we... we, 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 we have done what we've done against ISIS. But I'm not sure, John, that there is a grand strategy that in any uh, in any of the three administrations, I guess we've had four administrations, what is it, since um, or more over the past few decades that we've had a real strategy for going, for defending ourselves from those who claim to be waging a jihad against us. 
Yeah, I mean, grant strategy is 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 hard, and it's uh, you know, it's not that everything has been a complete failure. I mean, thank God there hasn't been another nine eleven, and there's good reasons for that, um, policy reasons and policies that were were put in place. Um, but the phenomenon of actually fighting global jihadism is a is a difficult is a difficult one. You can kill a lot of people, and we've killed a lot of people, and yet this um, movement, this ideology, has continued to attract a lot of recruits and a lot of followers all around the world. Um, Iraq was very very difficult, but by 2007 2008, we'd got begun to get a, a handle on on parts of Iraq via the surge. It took a long time, but we. We're clearly making progress there, as Seth says, in, in northeastern Syria, how much you want to complain about American policy and the dysfunctionality of, of the American government. Um, up to a couple of weeks ago, it was probably the most successful counterterrorism operation in the history of American mm -hmm. national security policy, as Seth says, at very low cost in American blood and treasure. We had finally identified a local proxy partner in the Middle East that, through American support, was able to, in fact, uh, fight and defeat um, probably the most savage and dangerous uh, terrorist uh, organization that the world had, had ever seen. Though at the same time, President Trump has wanted to at least contain and weaken the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is a, a nation state that is Shia and Persian, not Arab and Sunni, but very much dedicated to jihadism. They'd use the word just as much as Osama bin Laden or Bakr al-Baghdadi would. They, they're a state that is dedicated and committed to a jihad against uh, the West, against infidels, and particularly against the United States as as the leader of the West. Um, the destruction, one could say, the, the, the diminishment of the Islamic State and other policies that, 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 that we have in, in now are enhancing probably the power and the, and, the, and the ambitions of the Islamic Republic of Iran, are they not? It gives Iran a beautiful little highway that goes right across Iraq into Syria, right to Israel's border, next to where you have, of course, Hezbollah in, in southern Lebanon. So for Iran, for Iran, the rise of ISIS was just a wonderful little cake that suddenly appeared mm. for it to suddenly eat parts of. And I don't think that there's any evidence, for instance, that ISIS or, for instance, some people have suggested that the Syrian rebel groups, for instance, in, in parts of Syria were really a challenge to Iran. All they are is they kind of popped up and allow Iran an excuse to say, oh, that's interesting. Now we have an excuse to set down IRGC bases all over Syria and claim mm. we're fighting ISIS. I mean, we're fighting the Syrian rebels. That's how did Hezbollah get its hands onto Syria to claim that it's going to help Assad? Well, of course, it is helping Assad. The problem is once the Iranians and Hezbollah come into your house, they just stay there. They're like very bad unwanted guests. Your best reading of the uh, thinking in Israel right now? I think Israel, you know, is very, very concerned, of course, about the creeping Iranianization of Iraq and parts of Syria and this kind of road. I think that Israel is talking about the precision guidance that's coming down the road to Hezbollah. Precision guided missiles that, right. they, that the Iranians yes. want to give to Hezbollah so that they can not just have missile sallies going uh, exactly. off in the north, but they can target very specifically uh, places in Israel they want to hit. Right, because if you have 150,000 missiles like Hezbollah, 
you know, those missiles can all be aimed at a, t a, a large area. But if you have precision guidance, you could aim a thousand missiles just at the airport or just at the port of Haifa or chemical, whatever, you know, uh, gas stations or something. So or Demona, which is, uh, which we, where research is facility, right? yeah. So I think that Israel's real problem, and Israel, by the way, I'm sure was watching what happened in Saudi Arabia with the precision attack on yeah. Hubcake, in which nine cruise missiles and 25 drones were used to attack a strategic facility, which I think if we look at what's happening, you know, Iran has tested Israel's air defenses before with drones and rocket attacks, but they're very limited. I think everyone understands that what's coming down the road eventually may be a more sophisticated attack, which will force Israel to, of course, respond in a major way, not just tit for tat. What does what does what does Putin think about all this? I mean, he he's he's benefits. How much does he want? Is there, is there anything that he would restrict and not allow the Iranians or the Turks to do because it's not in his interest? There's been a lot of hope that, in fact. Uh, while both Putin and the Iranians are very eager um, to see the Assad regime uh, consolidate and win this civil war in, in Syria and assert its control over the entire country, uh, that uh, there's, a, there's a tactical commonality of interest between the Russians and Iranians, but that there is hope that they don't uh, completely have a coincidence of strategic interests in uh, in Syria, that in fact the Iranians would like to use Syria as a platform in which to uh, continue to exert their expansionist aims across the Middle East, including using it as a, a place from which to attack attack Israel. And the Russians have very little interest. They have actually a, a pretty decent relationship with the Israelis, and they know that if, uh, if Syria becomes a real problem for the Israelis, then eventually the Israelis might decide to destroy Russia's Syria project in addition to whatever they do against the Iranians. So the, the Russians do have an interest in, in keeping a lid on things in Syria in a way that the Iranians may, may not. Their ambitions uh, more, uh, regionally may be maybe uh, much more than what the Russians would be willing to tolerate. And the fact that you see some of that in the fact the Russians have, uh, again, with a wink and a nod, allowed the Israelis to conduct hundreds, if not more than a thousand strikes against Iranian targets and Iranian-associated targets throughout, throughout Syria. And in general, the, the Israelis have, have done that with, with a minimal amount of friction with the, with the Russians. There have been one or two exceptions to that. But, but on the whole, the Israelis have been able to do what they need to do to, uh, against the Iranians inside of Syria to kind of set back their, their entrenchment there. Uh, having, having said that, um, uh, I, I think it's, it's a very dubious bet whether at the end of the day uh, the Russians can actually consolidate and stabilize Syria without the Iranians there on the ground supporting Assad and supporting the uh, the Syrian military. We can see what, what will happen and what kind of tensions will emerge between Tehran and Moscow. But I think for people betting that at the end of the day, the Russians somehow will be an instrument by which the Israelis and Americans evict Iranian forces and Iranian uh, affiliates, uh, militias out of out of Syria. I think they're they're going to be waiting for a a very long time, is my guess. So the Kurdish backed, uh, the American backed Kurdish forces have been holding ISIS fighters in detention centers. 
thousands and thousands of them and their families. I guess one thing, we, there's a lot we don't know that's, about what's going to happen over the days ahead, but one thing I guess we can expect is those those facilities are not going to be guarded by, by, by Kurdish warriors. They're going to be needed elsewhere. We've got to expect that a lot of ISIS warriors and their families are going to escape. They're going to go, uh, thousands of them probably, to Europe, and some have already. Is that your view? We know, for instance, that there's a bunch of different detention facilities in Syria. Some of them have already gotten away. The ones in Anissa, for instance, near the front line. The big case is the 70,000 in Al-Hol, which are mostly women and children, of which not all of them are ISIS members. But the Pentagon reports have said that already the SDF, many months ago, didn't have the resources to police all these people. So inside the camp, there was already ISIS, uh, Hezbollah, or whatever it is, the morality police. It looks like of that group, 35,000 are Iraqis. They will probably go back, um, mostly women and children. About 35,000 or 40,000 are Syrian citizens, so they'll stay, I guess. No, the real problem is the hardcore foreigners, right? I know the Americans have taken a few out, but uh, it's clear that there's hundreds or thousands of hardcore ISIS, mostly former male fighters, who will apparently get away, and they will end up somewhere very bad. And where else is ISIS uh, strong in the world today? Well, there are ISIS affiliates in, throughout the places in the Sahel in Africa. There's some in the Philippines. I guess there's some in Afghanistan. I mean, Libya. Libya. I mean, we have to wonder about these groups because some mm -hmm. of these groups were groups that were already Al-Qaeda affiliates or other things. They just keep wanting to sign on with whatever brand comes along. So, for instance, Jesh Khalid, which was the group, the affiliate in the Golan, wasn't like the ISIS we heard about, you know, chopping people's heads off and selling women. Some of these affiliates in the Sinai are existing groups that existed there for a while. So these, I guess all these affiliates will fight their own small wars. I don't see them coming back as some global caliphate. So I, I'm, I'm going to end this not by asking you to predict because I think that's too hard. But John, if you were at the White House right now and the president were to say to you, okay, whatever is I've done right or wrong, what do you propose I do starting tomorrow? What, what would be your, your response? What, should be the, what would be the policy you would recommend going forward now? It's, it's very difficult just because the situation is so dire um, that these horses have been let out of the barn and, and uh, getting them back is, is, I think, probably a fool's errand knowing where the president's head is in, in this. I, I mean, the most important thing, if we are leaving Syria, or at least northeastern Syria, is to make sure those troops are safe and get out safely. Um, one of the consequences of the president's decision was that he uh, put those 1,000 or more American troops in an incredibly difficult position without any kind of, of real planning or notice. He betrayed, uh, uh, in one fell swoop, the force that was responsible for actually protecting uh, those 1,000 U.S. forces that were, that were there to help the Kurds. Uh, having betrayed the Kurds, uh, you put them in a very, very difficult position. The Turks coming in with, uh, it's important to say, jihadists at the forefront of the uh, the militias that the Turks sent in. Uh, they cut off the main road out of uh, northeastern Syria to Iraq that U.S. troops would have used. Uh, so U.S. troops are really in, in, in some significant amount of, of danger right now with a lot of people with weapons running and circling 
around them. So uh, I think we, if we're going to leave, we need to make sure we get them, get them out of there uh, uh, very safely. Then I think you know after that, we've got to figure out how we mitigate the humanitarian disaster that's occurring. Uh, that we put as much pressure as we can on the on the Turks to be restrained here. Although without any force on the ground, your leverage has you know obviously at 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 a very very low ebb. You've essentially thrown it all away and handed it over to the Russians, Iranians, and the and the Assad regime. So there are there are no real good options here. Seth, you're you're not an advisor to to presidents on policy. You're a journalist. Your book is a, a rough draft of history of a particular period, the rise of ISIS, and to a certain extent, to a certain extent, the fall of ISIS. Not completely. The book is about the impact of ISIS. A few years down the road, what do you think will be? Uh, what will have been the impact of ISIS on America, on the world, on global jihadism? All the things we're we're looking at now. I think the way in which ISIS was able to rise and the fact that it exploited the kind of ungoverned spaces and weak states is a big lesson that most countries in the region now learn, no, no, we, we can't be weak now. We have to have strong authoritarian state governments. And that is, by the way, what we're seeing in Turkey or Egypt or even Khalifa Haftar in Libya or Saudi Arabia or all these different countries. I mean, we're seeing a return to state power and, uh, and walking away from the idea of allowing countries like Libya or Yemen or Syria to become a chaos or even parts of Iraq. So the the crackdown on the Iraqi protesters by Iranian-backed Shia militias is just part of that. And I think we're seeing a lot of authoritarianism. I think we'll see stronger states. I think we're also seeing a weakness in the kind of many parts of the Arab world, which is that we're seeing the stronger players are now Iran, uh, we said it, Turkey, Russia. So that's where we're heading. And it seems that that obviously means Israel has to ask some tough questions about it's it's the countries it has peace agreements with and partnerships with apparently are the countries that are under some strain today so that's and that's also all the countries that are allied with america mostly so that's where we're heading and it means that it's going to be a very different it's not going to be a multipolar world but the united states is is losing a lot in the middle east through the decisions it itself has made in some cases or boxing itself out of being a key decision maker so these are some ominous trends we're looking at. Um, thank you, Seth Fransman, for reporting on this all these years, and thanks for coming on today. Thank you, John Hanna. I know you'll be watching carefully and making recommendations on policy to at least mitigate the damage that we think has now been done. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about. We won't do it today, but we will do it thanks to all of you for listening and being with us today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening to Foreign Policy.